So Allie and I had a chance to sneak away last week. I've tried to say that four times now. We, had, we, went, we got away. We left. It was awesome. So my folks came into town, Tang with Bo, and as they're pulling, and as we're pulling out of the driveway, we're headed to O'Hare, he's sitting at the window. He's got this big smile on his face. His Nana and Papa are with him, right? And they're, they're, wa they're waving goodbye out the window, and Allie turns to me to look at me, and she's got those big, those big tears in her eyes. You know the ones? And I... And, I make a joke. I try to crack the tension. I try to, to ease the mood a little bit. Um, but she passes it off, and, uh, and she just blurts out, did you leave him a letter? And I go, huh? What? What are you talking about? A letter? You know, in case we don't come back, right? Did you leave him a note, you know? At which point I felt like the worst dad ever because of all the details that you've got to go through uh, to consider as we're headed off for five days. This note was not one of the details that I had considered. So she, of course, did. And you know what? She didn't sign it for the both of us, which I just thought was very, <laughs> very selfish and insensitive. Um, so next time, uh, really the change is that she needs to sign for the both of us instead of me taking the time. So um, the, it's a big thing to think about, right? Whether you're making a video or you're writing a letter, what, what words do you want to leave behind for your children or your loved ones? I would want him to know the dealio, right? The dealio on life. That's, that's something I would want to leave for him. I want to leave behind the perfect set of words and instructions so he would know exactly how to navigate this life the best way possible. I'd want him to know how much I loved and cared for him, how I only want him to find joy in this life. I'd want him to know the reality of suffering, right? How it's a part of life, how it's importance to the fullness of living this life. I want him to know how to throw a curveball and how to jumpstart a car and how to prepare the perfect ribeye. But is there, but is there anything I could write in a letter or even say in a video that would accomplish all of that? Are there words that I could leave behind that would be enough for him to know exactly what I think about him and what I want him to know about life, about this life? I'm not sure that words could be enough. The last few weeks of the gathering, we've been exploring the way of Jesus. We're diving into some of the specific ways and practices uh, that Jesus showed us, he taught us, uh, that, and, and how, how do those ways resonate with us, and where might they fit into our lives, specifically in this moment in our lives. Um, and so this is not an attempt, this series, the, the, the direction we're going, it's not an attempt to necessarily make the way of Jesus a way of life, because that's not the goal. The goal is to live the life that we were created for, right? It's not just replication it's incarnation coming through us. So what is it going to take to live the life that we were created for, where life works and it functions properly to be and to do, to love and to live as we were meant to? Essentially, what is the dealio on life? Is there, is there a best way to live this life on this planet with these people in this time? So last week, Jill gave a masterful talk on the idea of gratitude, and she said this. I want to quote it. Gratitude is a reordering of our hearts to recognize that we could not be who we are or where we are in life without God's grace. 
The way of life we are created for is a transformation of our being to see all of life as a gift of grace. Isn't that beautiful? It was an incredible talk, one that is certainly worth revisiting. But this morning, we're going to keep moving forward in that direction with this concept of the way of Jesus as a way of living. Actually, for the next two weeks, we're going to dive into the Word of God as part of this way. So, um, but this morning, I want to hone in on Scripture. I want to hone in on the Bible as God's Word. I want to give us a portrait of the Bible in its entire narrative, right? And really explore what is this book? What is this thing that we call the Word of God? Next week, we're going to ask the question, what are we supposed to do with it? But this morning, what is it? So to start, it should be noted that the Bible is not the fourth member of the Trinity, right? We, we should be clear out of that right out of the gate. We do not worship a book or its words, but we do honor the God of which this book is about, um, but not the book itself. Uh, and, the, and the other thing to consider, the Bible, it's a human book, right? This is a human book written by human beings for an audience of human beings in a time when human beings occupied this planet. I think sometimes, I think sometimes we try to strip the humanity out of the Bible. No, this is a human book full of humanity. And if we read it with enough seriousness, then maybe we see the divinity coming out of it. But it starts as a human book. The, the Bible has roughly 40 unique authors, and its writings span over a 1,500-year period of time, with Job being the first book, that the oldest book written in the Bible, and Second Peter being the, the oldest, or the newest, excuse me, book written that's included in the Scriptures as we have them. There's three different languages that are used to write the original uh, manuscript of the Bible. It's Hebrew, Aramaic, and Greek. And it has since been translated into 724 languages uh, and 100 different English translations of the Bible. 100 unique, different English language translations of the Bible. A little perspective on that. There's roughly 7,000 words in ancient Hebrew. There's about 6,000 in ancient Greek. But in circulation right now, in the modern English language, we have about 170,000. So if you think about that translation, that's about 25 English words per one Hebrew word. Right? So we can understand why 100 different unique complete English translations of the Bible exist. So imagine the variability that must exist amongst all those different versions of the Bible just within English. It's fascinating. So those hundred translations are then read and adopted across 44,000 different Christian denominations. 44,000. Isn't that wild? There's 66 books in the Protestant Bible and there's 73 in the Catholic Bible. It has two creation stories. They seem to contradict each other at points. It has four versions of the gospel, the life of Jesus. Those stories have very different perspectives on the same, event, same events in history. It has two chronicles of Jewish history, and those seem to contradict each other in how they're told. And there's more poetry in the Bible than there is New Testament. So if you were to add up all the poetry that exists in the Bible, there's more of that than there is the entire New Testament of the Bible. So what are we supposed to do with this book? What are we supposed to do with all of this and yet say, here is the Word of God? What is the Word of God? 
Think with me for a moment about the last year of your life, everything that went on between March 5th, 2022 and March 5th, 2023. What's happened? What stories would you choose to tell? What moments stick out? What highlights would you recognize? Now think about the last 10 years, right? What moments stick out in those years? What stories would you choose to tell? Would you tell this whole year? Or would you skip some stuff to accommodate all 10 years? How about 20 years of your life? Or 30 years? How would you distill down the stories and the, and the, and the narrative then? Now think about your life in its entirety. What moments would you choose to highlight that from your birth up until now? And then maybe include your parents' story. And what about their parents' story and their parents' story? How would you tell all of that? What stories, what information, what lessons would you include in order to convey the story of your entire life that includes multiple generations back? At a certain point, it's hard to even know where we would start in that. Could there be words that could accurately capture the whole story and the lessons that we gained from it? But that's what the Bible is. Except instead of three generations or four generations, it spans 4,000 years of Jewish history. It's the history of a tribe of people. 4,000 years of this tribe. Things change after 4,000 years, right? the way people live, the way they walk, the way they eat and breathe and talk, it all changes over 4,000 years. So this book, it's the story of the Jewish people. It's the story of the Hebrew people and their journey through life with God. It's a library of stories and letters and poems and songs that have survived all of those thousands of years. It's the moments that have mattered the most over those 4,000 years of history. These are the stories that lasted. One of Jesus' disciples, John's, he writes about the Word of God in his opening, in his opening words of his gospel. He tells, us, he tells the Jesus story, and he starts with this. He says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was God in the beginning. Through him all things were made. Without him nothing was made that has been made. And that is a very interesting series of sentences, right? You kind of, it's, it's hard to necessarily grasp, but a couple key highlights. He says, the Word was with God. And then he says, the Word was God. And then, He was with God in the beginning. So this Word was with God from the get-go, and then all of a sudden this Word now has a pronoun. He was with God in the beginning. A few verses later, it says, the Word became flesh and moved into the neighborhood. The Word became flesh and blood and moved into the neighborhood. This flesh and this blood that John is referring to, it's Jesus. Who the, this is who the Bible claims to be the Son of God and is now being, is claiming to be the living Word of God. And so as we consider the way of Jesus, it's critical then that we examine the word Jesus, excuse me, the word that's coming alive through Jesus. It's critical that we understand the origin of what is this word of God that's being made into flesh. 
John is stating that Jesus is the living proof that the word of, the, that the word of God is the way of life. So then, what is the Word of God? What is Jesus the living proof of? That's the question I want to ask this morning. What is it that Jesus is the living proof of, and how are we supposed to respond to that? How are, what are we supposed to do with that? His life and death are trying to tell us something. He's li- he is the living proof. There, there is one way of living in which love ultimately wins despite the brokenness of this world and the words that we would use to explain it.
All right. So what is John referring to when he says the word? If, if Jesus is the living proof of the word, then maybe there's some merit in figuring out what this word is. Maybe have some understanding around that. So to answer that question, we have to dive into the context of the scripture. And at this point, you guys can just call me big context guy, because this is what I love. This is, I just love to hone into the story that's happening behind the story. So I want to know all the little details that are happening behind the scenes and below the surface. Because if I'm going to follow a certain type of way, if I'm going to follow rules or, or, or wisdom or something like that, I've got to know where it's coming from. I've got to trust where it's coming from. Um, and so that's what we're going to do this morning. We're going to, we're, going to, we're going to dive into the origin story of this Word of God. In the time of the Bible, the world worked a little bit differently than it does today. In biblical times, there existed tribes of people, each of which had their own way of living in and existing in the world. They had their own geographic space, they had their own laws, their own customs, and their own views on marriage and religion and anything in between. Well, in these tribes, a leader of them would be determined by who was the biggest, who was the strongest, fastest, and most popular amongst that group. And this person, um, through their might and their privilege, would become a leader of the tribe. And they would stay in power until they, they were defeated by a bigger, stronger, and faster person, or they died on, of natural causes, in which case their eldest son would then take over for them if not challenged by another tribe. And so the survival of these tribes, it was dependent on access to food and water. And so they began migrating across the land in search of that food and water, and oftentimes they would come upon a group who had already found access to these things. And well, what happens when you find somebody who has what you want, or in this case, what you need, right? The natural human tendency is to take it. And so that they would battle and they would take over the land. And the winning tribe, they would enslave the other group of people and use those slaves to then build up their tribe even further. And so on and so forth. So tribes began to grow and eventually some uh, settlements began to form. They stopped being nomadic and they, they stayed in one place and cities were built. And some of these cities and some of these tribes had greater access to food and water than others. Wars were lost and won, and some tribes grew while other cu cultures were obliter obliterated. So this is how it worked in biblical times. I'm told it's very different in 2023. Well, the Bible tells a story of one of these tribes called the Hebrews. And the formation of this tribe starts with Abraham through the divine and mystical encounter with the God Yahweh. Yeah, we're going to do this Sunday school style. Um, I got to try to get as close to a felt board as I could. Um, so yeah, this, hopefully this will be fun. Um, so the formation of this tribe starts with my man Abraham uh, through a divine and mystical encounter with, uh, with uh, the God Yahweh. So this God was different from all the other gods. He was a good God, and he stood for unity and justice and liberation, not destruction and power and overcoming the lesser than. So this God, he tells Abraham that, that he will become the father of all nations, that Abraham is tasked with the responsibility to become the father of all nations. And he goes on to have a son named Isaac, who has two sons named Jacob and Esau. So Esau goes on to start a tribe known as the Edomites, while Jacob, 
who also has, this, has a divine and, and mystical interaction with Yahweh, uh, goes on to build a tribe called the Hebrews and later would be known as the Israelites. He would eventually have 12 sons, and those sons would form the 12 tribes of Israel. There was also another tribe in the land known as the Egyptians. And they had settled, they settled on the Nile Delta, which is an oasis of food and water. If you want to talk about access to your basic needs, the Nile Delta was the perfect location. It was the perfect place to build a kingdom. Except they didn't want to build it on their own. And so um, one other key detail about the Egyptians that we should note is that the Egyptians had a piece of technology that no one else in this part of the world had. It was called the chariot. So imagine, if you, imagine what you could do. Imagine what your country could do if they had a piece of military technology that no one else had. Right? What kind of advantage would that be in the, uh, in the age of tribal warfare? So the, the Egyptians with their chariots and their army that they had built over thousands of years of taking over tribes in the region, um, they head north and they discover a much more primitive group of people calling themselves the Hebrews. So Egypt and their leader, they enslave all 12 tribes of Israel and they take them back to Egypt and they force them through fear and bondage to build their kingdom. We've just reached the second book of the Bible, so we've got a long ways to go. Um, <laughs> bear with me. Uh, the Hebrew people are freed after 400 years of enslavement in Egypt by a man named Moses. Um, and he's an Israelite who was adopted by a, the family of Pharaoh and later went on to overthrow that family, the family that raised him, to free his people, to free the Hebrews from bondage in, in Egypt. So that tribe, after 40 years of wandering, they eventually find a home in the promised land um, that we still to this day call Israel. And over those 40 years of wandering, Moses is tasked by God with leading this group of people. And what needs to happen when you're leading a group, right? When you are tasked with being the leader, it's, it's your job to establish order, right? And there, there has to be order in order for the group to survive. There has to be rules that are put in place. An organization has to come together in order to share our lives. So a huge part of the Bible that we might find the most cruel and confusing and at some points maybe seems irrelevant, these are the laws and the rules that were established during this time. These are the rules of order that were meant for a very specific group of people in a very specific circumstance, in a specific setting. And if we, can, if we forget that, right, the Bible can really start to sound ridiculous. In our world today, there exists a set of laws and rules and regulation that are designed to maintain order within the boundaries of our country. We take classes in school to study these rules and regulations so that we know that they're history, we know where they come from, and these laws have been written and edited and interpreted for the better part of 300 years, and they're still to this day the foundation of our democracy as the tribe of America. Israel's no different. It too needed to establish peace and order in the beginning of this new nation. So Moses, remembering a lifetime of doing it differently, and in many ways doing it wrong in Egypt, he begins to write and establish a, a new constitution, a new way for how this tribe is going to live and operate in the world. So that written law 
Uh, we still have it. It's the first five books of the Bible, and we call it the Torah or the Law of Moses. This is Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. This is the first uh, establishment of law and order for this new tribe of Hebrews. So Moses, in writing these books, he's attempting to establish a new way to live and exist in the world, a new way to connect with others. These are laws about interacting with the divine. They're how we care for the, for the impoverished, how we care for the widow and the orphan and the immigrant and the refugee. It, these are laws about how to remember the poor and oppressed. And over and over again, Moses is trying to draw them back to try to convince them to follow this way by saying, remember, you were once a slave in Egypt. Remember your origin story and make that count as you live in this world. Remember you were once a slave in Egypt. Moses wants Israel to remember and learn from the history, never forgetting the least of these, because they were once the least of these. It's in these books that we hear a command such as, do not murder, which I hope today shouldn't be a revolutionary idea, right? It's a pretty, pretty good consensus. We can stack hands that we should not murder. But in this day and age, 4,000 years ago, this was a revolutionary idea. Because before this, if someone wronged you, or if they hurt you, or if they took your things or hurt your family, you killed them. If someone had what you wanted, you took it. If someone took something that was yours, you took their life. You see, God through Moses was trying to take just one step forward in the moral consciousness of humanity. He's attempting to evolve the way that not only we think about the world, but the way that we live in it. So a more specific example of this, maybe one that uh, you might be familiar with, this is from Exodus chapter 21. It says, the punishment must match the injury. A life for a life, an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth, a hand for a hand, a foot for a foot, burn for a burn, wound for a wound, a bruise for a bruise. Right? Equal punishment for the law that was broken. This is a passage specifically in Scripture that is uh, trying to describe the process of determining the punishment for someone who inflicts injury on an unborn child, right? Super specific, right, to this, this very anecdotal interaction. How are we supposed to do with that? It doesn't discuss the process that existed prior to this. And that's because there was no process. In biblical times, if someone hurt you or your family, it was common you just redeem that violence with an even greater violence. The theory of redemptive violence. You strike us, we strike back. But Moses is trying to infuse grace and mercy into this world. This was not a mandate as much as it was a regulation. It was meant to prevent excessive redemptive violence. This passage is from Exodus chapter 21. When taken in its context, is about taking just one step forward in relation to a God who strives for goodness and reconciliation instead of death and destruction and abuse of power. So when you establish law and order, then you have to establish a way to enforce the laws and preserve the order. So the Israelites, they build an army and they establish a monarchy to govern the people of Israel. The Bible then details the thousands of years, excuse me, a thousand years of enforcement and preservation of that law. Um, it details king after king in this long history. It details them taking power. Some of them were good kings, some of them were bad kings. It details wars that, to protect their land and to take more. And some of those wars were won, 
and some of those wars were lost. And it's in these books of the Bible that we see some of the more brutal passages of what it took for the Hebrews to preserve their law and their order over the years. But during that time, Israel experiences incredible growth. They become an empire. Incredible wealth and power, a massive army, endless resources. Songs were written about this time. Wisdom was being shared. Art was being produced. Israel had become a kingdom. In many ways, Israel had become Egypt. And then something interesting really happens here. King Solomon, he builds a temple in Jerusalem, and he establishes Israel as one of the great nations of the time. But when he dies, the kingdom is divided between his two sons who disagree on how the world should work. Weakened by a divided army, both states are conquered, the north by the Assyrians and the south by the Babylonians who instill their own ways of living. They've got new rules, they've got new laws, they've got new religions and gods in a way of living. And so the, the people of Israel are left with two choices. Do we give in to this new and foreign way, or do we resist and rebel and fight against it? And so out of a resistance movement, we see prophets begin to rise up. And they're speaking against those who've joined this new way, right? The way of the Babylonians, the way of the Assyrians. They're speaking to those people um, and they start, be, they start talking about a new king of Israel who was going to rise up and once again rule over all of creation. And he, would be, he would serve Yahweh, and he would lead his people in that direction. And this future king they called the Messiah, uh, which literally means the deliverer of the nation of Israel. These people were longing for deliverance. Once again, they'd found themselves slaves and they wanted liberation. It didn't come, though, at least not right away. The Assyrians and the Babylonians would eventually be taken over by the Persians, and the Persians would eventually be taken over <laughs> by the Greeks, and the Greeks would eventually be taken over by the Romans, right? And the Roman ruler, Julius Caesar, he had left his kingdom to his adopted son, Augustus. You may remember back from our talk at Christmas, we learned about Caesar Augustus. Uh, Julius Caesar left his king to his adopted son, Augustus, uh, who would be called the Son of God. And this Son of God, under the guise of peace, he was building another empire. And his army was going from village to village, commanding that they bow to the flag of Caesar Augustus, the Son of God. And if they didn't, they would be crucified. There are stories about entire towns being burned to the ground while the entire population of the town is hanging on crosses. Thousands of people all at once. This was the Roman view of peace. Force people to bow and obliterate those who don't. Because when everyone agrees, then we have peace. I'm told it works differently in 2023. Those cities would then be subject to taxation so that the Roman government could continue to fund this conquest, right? So in first century Israel, Jewish people would have been subject to a 30% city tax, a 30% temple tax, a 30% Roman tax. It's 90%. That would leave a family with only 10% of an income to feed and house and take care of those basic needs. So pause for a second and imagine the scene. Put yourselves in the shoes of the Jewish people. It's easy to see why they would be longing for the Messiah to come. It's easy to see 
why most would have missed him. The Messiah that people were longing for was believed to be a great military and political leader, someone who would come to overthrow the Roman government and bring divine law and order back to their promised land, someone who would value the law of Moses and, and the Torah would rise again as the law of the land. They wanted retribution and revenge. They wanted to go back to the way things were, back when it was great and glorious and beautiful. They wanted justice and they wanted liberation. But instead... An unwed teenage mother from Nazareth, a town destroyed by the Roman government, and a man displaced by tax, or tax exhortation from his home in Bethlehem, they give birth to their son, Jesus. They give birth to him in a barn. Jesus was born on the margins of society to an immigrant family who sought refuge in Egypt of all places. They leave the promised land to go where to seek refuge? Egypt. They escaped the tyrant, a tyrannical leader who's unjustly occupied the land of their ancestors. He was born into poverty. Jesus was born as a minority. He was born as part of the oppressed on the underbelly of society. This was not the, the Messiah that this tribe wanted. He was not the Savior that they were looking for. And so Jesus begins his ministry around the 30th year of his life. He begins healing people and talking about a new way to live in the world. And just as Moses did 2,000 years prior, Jesus presents a new formula for what justice, peace, and reconciliation will look like for this tribe of people. He describes a way where not only are we to love those who love us, but we're to love our enemy as well. He said, blessed are the poor in spirit, Blessed are the meek, those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Blessed are the peacemaker, and blessed are the persecuted. He said, you've heard it said that, the people, that from people long ago, do not murder. Right? He's calling back to Moses. You've heard it said long ago, do not murder. But I tell you, anyone who looks at his brother in anger has committed murder in his heart. He describes a world in which the accumulation of weapons and wealth and power is against the kingdom of God. He talks about a world in which humility will lead to blessing and favor. He says, love your enemies and turn the other cheek. And if they ask for your shirt, you give them your coat as well. This is Jesus raising the stakes of the human condition. He's pushing the envelope of moral consciousness, just like Moses did 2,000 years earlier. He's making a case for the good life amidst all of this suffering and poverty. To say the least, this was definitely not the Messiah, not the Savior that they were looking for. And those who didn't believe him and follow him began to see him as a heretic. He was living in defiance of their law, defending those who were in complete violation of the law and lived against the way of life that these people had fought so hard to preserve. And so a group of religious leaders, they, call, they called themselves the Pharisees, they conspired against him and devised a plan to have him killed, to have him silenced once and for all, because he was disrupting the way of life. And in order for there to be order, we all have to agree, right? What these Pharisees missed was in their commitment to the word. They were in so engrossed with the literal interpretation of the law that they lost sight they lost sight of the word of God becoming flesh before their eyes. They lost themselves in the interpretation and missed 
the incarnation of God that was right in front of them. Jesus challenged their goal to return to Jerusalem, to its former glory, and that was enough for him to be silenced. And so they, they have him arrested, they have him beaten and tortured, and they have him hung on a cross. And three days after his death, witnesses begin to report seeing Jesus throughout the region. The Bible records this as his resurrection back into life. The Messiah, the Word of God made flesh, has defeated death, rendering the influence of any oppressor meaningless. The way of God, the gospel of grace, the Word of God has proven itself victorious. And so with this in mind, his followers begin to disperse throughout the region, planting churches across Europe and the Mediterranean coastline, and the message of Jesus begins to take shape and definition. Theories and practices begin to get exchanged by letters between disciples and their churches. Long essays on how, on the how behind the belief. And it's in these letters that we read this from the Apostle Paul. He writes, but what happens when we live God's way? He brings gifts into our lives, much the same way that fruit appears in an orchard, things like affection for others, an exuberance about life, and serenity. We develop a willingness to stick with things, a sense of compassion in the heart, and a conviction that a basic holiness permeates all things and people. We find ourselves involved in loyal commitments, not needing to force our way in life, and we're able to marshal and direct our energies wisely. Legalism is helpless in bringing all this about. It only gets in the way. Do you see what's happening here? Do you see the progression through history, how these are not isolated moments, but an entire narrative? And when we see the whole story from beginning to end, the word of God starts to become more than just words. The This book, the Bible, it's a collection of stories. It's a library of stories and letters and poems and songs and laments that are at times beautiful but also tragic and confusing. It's always, though, giving us an example of how we can take a step forward in our morality and in our consciousness, how we willingly participate in the creation of this world that strives for unity and reconciliation and peace. How do we do that? Through love, through love for the other. That's what Moses was trying to do when he delivered the Israelites from Egypt, and it's what Jesus was trying to showcase for us in his life and death on the cross. Paul is trying to tell us that to live in the way of Jesus is to live a life without loss. And how do we do that? By valuing above everything else, Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. There is no law or limit to any of these things. Legalism is helpless in bringing this about. Jesus is the embodiment, the incarnation of those words, those stories of revolutionary grace, those stories of liberation and redemption, the story of renewal and forgiveness. But here's the catch. These words and these stories and these lessons, the word of God, it means nothing unless we become those words as well. 
If love isn't the foundation of our being, then these are just meaningless words on a page and will continue to just confuse us and disparage us. But if we were instead to look at this library of books, this collection of books called the Bible, as a note that was left behind, a letter from the ones who love us most, words that serve as the best and most concise explanation for how to live this life that you were created for, then maybe we can more easily accommodate this task. This book is meant to be our excuse to love. It's meant to be our excuse to extend grace and mercy, not withhold it. And so Jesus becomes the word lived out, the, inc the incarnation of this story of liberation and love. And the life I believe Jesus is hoping for us is one without laws, right? One without rules and regulation, a life where love and joy and peace are endless, a life where we look at the life of Jesus, as we look at the word made flesh, we look at the words of his followers and we say, so will I. God of creation There at the start For the beginning of time With no point of reference You spoke to the dark And fleshed out the wonder If it all reveals 
became flesh and blood and moved into the neighborhood to examine the way of Jesus, to examine his life and what it might mean for us. 
we have to see the Word becoming flesh, and then we have to see that Word living out through us. Friends, may you take a step forward in consciousness towards living in the way of Jesus, a life without laws. May you love fully and openly and find affection for all people. May you find joy and an exuberance for life in the pursuit of justice. May you seek peace and serenity in all corners of this world. May you be patient and act with kindness and goodness by fostering compassion in your heart. May you be faithful and gentle and controlled in your pursuit of holiness. And may the grace and peace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with you. Amen. Friends, have a wonderful Sunday.